Today's outstanding sponsor is Unimus, an easy-to-use network automation and configuration management solution. Discover how to start automating your network in under 15 minutes at unimus.net slash packetpushers. That's unimus.net slash packetpushers. Unimus, network automation and configuration management made easy. Today's show is sponsored in part by Interoptic. Fortune 500 companies choose Interoptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. Interoptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at Interoptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. Configuring the network, that's... That isn't the hard part of networking because you write commands and you commit them and sure, some of the commands are esoteric and nuance matters. And so you feel like you did a hard thing when you finally get the command or API call or playbook or however you jam and config into your devices. When you finally get that correct, oh, it feels like a thing. But again, that is really not the hard part. The hard part is proving that the configuration you put in has created the desired state on the network. For example, you jam in a bunch of OSPF config in one or several devices, and what is now the state of the network? Do you have the neighbor relationships that you expect? Do you also have neighbor relationships you didn't expect? Oops. How would you check network state to prove this one way or the other? In ye olden days of the CLI, you'd run a bunch of show commands. And I don't mean show running config. I mean, you'd show the state of the OSPF processes on the box with show IP OSPF, blah, blah and similar. When you do that, you're harvesting network state to determine that the network reality matched your intent. In the brave new world of automation, we don't verify network state with show commands. I mean, we could, we could use Python and NetMiko and parsing libraries, but that's only if we had no other choice. With modern network models and telemetry, can we do better? Well, the answer is yeah, yes, but it's not easy. In fact, our guest John Capobianco thinks automated state validation is an advanced automation technique. But that is our topic today, automated state validation here on heavy networking. Again, John Capobianco is our guest. John, welcome to the show. And if you would, hey, man, tell us a little bit about yourself and your somewhat aggressive introduction into the world of network automation. Well, first, thanks for having me. This is incredible. Uh, this is a highlight of my year for sure. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to be discussing this on heavy networking. So who am I? Let me give you some background. I've been in IT about 20 years now. I entered a computer programmer analyst program, so a three-year local community college program in Kingston, Ontario at St. Lawrence College um, in 2000. And as it turned out, my co-op was actually in more of the client-server network space as opposed to doing programming. So I come out of there with a diploma in programming with no real-world experience, and my real-world experience in client-server with no diploma or, or certifications behind it. Um, as it so happened, I, I was had a knack for networking in general and client-server, so I spent the first third of my career till about 2008, you know, getting my A plus and my N plus um, all the way up to Microsoft certified enterprise admin. Uh, I had an ITIL cert uh, when the company I worked for one day said, we're reorging and we need you to do enterprise networking full time. 
So that starts in 2008 for me. And I get my CCNA, my CCNP. Um, most recent certification is CCNP Data Center, uh -huh. uh, which was spring of this year. So I say all that because I'm still very much one of the networking club. I feel like I'm yeah. I'm I'm outside of the club now because I'm doing development and and, and, <laughs> and I'm being ostracized from my networking peers who are saying, no, you you know, it's about BGP neighbors. It's not about loops and, and if statements, right? So um uh, I joined the Canadian House of Commons, the Parliament of Canada, in 2013 as part of what they called the Next Generation Parliamentary Precinct Network Program. Oh, you joined them as, a, as IT support. You didn't join them as a politician. Not as a politician. Yes. No, no. I joined them to uh, completely revamp the, the network, like a very big vision um, all 50 campus buildings, a new data center, a new WAN, all new uh, perimeters and firewalls, and we're going to go to the cloud and we want wireless. So the networking engineering of a green field for a very large public uh, organization, right? And, and this was very large, and this started in 2013. Um, and I don't want to give any misconceptions that I did that automatically, that that was to me a very much a stone age, uh, artisanal, handcrafted <laughs> routers. You plugged uh, in all the cables one by one, and you yeah, just printed little labels on things, and wrote the custom config stanzas one at a time. And yeah, yeah, we need a port channel standard so that I can go to the CLI of every router and add a port channel yeah. the same way. So that was that was tough, and and and. Right. Why did I turn to automation? So I looked, I combed over my email history. My first, you know, ping on the radar of automation was in April of 2017. I, I emailed a colleague that I had found, stumbled upon, um, you know, docs.ansible.com. And, and what is this, what is this all about? What, what is this new world? What can we do with this tool? So, um, to where I got started, my, my, um, crash course into automation, we had a new data center that was coming online that required us to um, reconfigure VRFs on the campus, mm -hmm. like a very big job. And it, and it wasn't necessarily complex. It was renaming VRFs and changing some routes and, and network engineering stuff. But the scale of it, right, all 50 buildings needed this change and the core in an okay. orchestrated fashion. They needed to go in a specific sequence, so I didn't yep. leave a building hanging or whatever. And then what about those edge cases where I have a building to building? So I have to do the way downstream switch and work my way towards the core so I don't black okay. hole. You know what I mean? Yep, yep, like yep, network yep. engineering um, logic. And, yeah. and it, so that seemed like in my, you know, um, possible arrogance slash ignorance, let's automate this, right? I found Ansible. I can write a playbook to do this. We can orchestrate it. And, and, um, and it worked. It was tough. It was very hard. And I'll tell you why it was hard. It wasn't because Ansible is hard. It was because my tooling was way off. I was, you know, I opened up Notepad <laughs> and uh, started writing YAML files in mm -hmm. Notepad and, and was using like TFTP to copy them to my Linux box. And they were called like, you know, John's new script version three should work <laughs> underscore two. And then I'm going to send it over to the Linux box and try the play. Not very and team was, friendly, kind of John friendly ish, no, but no, uh, not right. team friendly. No. And then, well, and then, you know, and then I would get emails from, you know, colleague two's attempt underscore John's revision three, right? We did try to cobble <laughs> right? together some teamwork oh. this way. Um, and it just, it, you know, it wasn't that 
we weren't automating it well. Like the playbook ran and we updated our VRFs and it was all logged and Ansible did the job. And we actually thought it failed. I apologize to the room. I'm sorry, you know, the playbook crashed after 48 seconds. And then the operator said, no, no, like the, the routes are here, John. Like this, this looks like it all worked, right? Hmm. So we were just astounded by the, the, the capability of this um, tool, right? Mm-hmm. But again, it was, yeah, my approach was like an old networks, old school network guy. I'm going to use Notepad yep. and I'm going to hammer away at it back and forth, trial well, and it's, error. It's until... hard to replace everything you're familiar with right out of the gate, right? Because you like, right. you know, there's a certain comfort level with using tools. You understand how they work and you know what the caveats are. And you, they're predictable. And when you're doing something new, you want as much predictability as you can get. This is hard. Right. Right. So I was fortunate that like one, this was like a bomb going off in the organization, right? John automated this crazy thing, and everyone was interested now. And um, it was actually um, a senior, a very senior software development management. So the, the the director of software approached me and said, "You know, you did some great stuff here, but why don't you talk to some of our developers, and they'll get you a Git repository, mm-hmm. and you can start working with different tools." And and you know. He kind of laughed at my approach. I had to give him the explanation. Oh, notepad. You're so cute. Right. <laughs> Isn't that cute? The network guy's trying to be a programmer. Wow. <sighs> so that was, there was, you know, and, and I took it on the chin and I, he was, he had some valid points. So then, right. So then I go to team foundation server, the GUI they send me to, and uh, you know, this is my exploratory process. And one of the links is to go get Git. And to make a repository. And one of the other links in the dashboard is but to go get VS Code. Just to be right? clear, you say Git, or you mean actually just Git locally or Git, Git, GitHub, where you're actually so, using as a repo? No, it's a good point. So we actually, so what he pointed me to was a Team Foundation Server repository. Okay. So that's Microsoft yeah. Team Foundation Server. Yeah, yeah. They had, at the time, it was 2015 was the label. There is a 2018. With, these are on-prem services, by the way, when I say TFS. Now, the latest and greatest is Azure DevOps, yes, yeah, which is reach. cloud offering, mm-hmm. and they have a local on-prem offer, but it's been rebranded. So I, I say TFS, think Azure DevOps. If you're new and if, yeah. if these are new things to you, look forward, not backwards. Look at Azure DevOps. Yeah, we did uh, a show I'm on Azure to. DevOps and you know the team foundation history of that, the legacy on either Day2 Cloud or Datanauts. I forget which, but yeah, that, that that's we, we covered that at some point. Yeah. Okay, good. So yeah. I could, I mean, I could use GitHub for this, but I, you know, being... They're, they're my routes and my DNS entries, and it's sensitive code, right? And and I didn't want the, you know management did not want this stuff up on GitHub, yeah, right? Just making sure that people don't conflate Git and GitHub, which is yes. easy to do. Um, they're, very they're two different things. Yeah, yeah, very easy to do. So um, I, I have a Git repository. So, th- so think of it as a GitHub repo, except it's it's behind a different GUI and it's private to my company, mm-hmm. right? So I can share, I can say to my new developers or my colleagues, okay, go get clone, you know, John's repo one or John's test repo or whatever, and let's start using VS Code. And then VS Code led to all of the extensions. Like I'm up to like 30 extensions in VS Code now. Now, things now to help VS me Code, write. The, the connection to Git here yes. is that um, you can, with VS Code, very easily uh, integrate with Git so that you've got good version control of the code that you're writing. Yes. So that was that was their point. Um, they they wanted to introduce version and source control over the Ansible playbooks that I was writing and the, and the artifacts that were generated by those playbooks, say intended configurations, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, as well as my 
variables and my templates, everything that makes up to me and you know a, an Ansible Git repo should will become more familiar to people with what what folder structure will exist in that repo, what files will live in that repo. Um, so that late, let me really start to work collaboratively. I had version and source control. There was no more uh, <laughs> TFTPing files back and forth. Right, Git is that framework that lets me do Git pulls and pushes and clones. So the pushes your and point pulls of, and clones. You're actually making copies of, in this case, Ansible playbooks to put it where you need it, not shoveling a text file around by hand exactly so i can write my code and this is i still do this today i write my code in my windows 10 development workstation which is vs code and its extensions and it's git enabled and and i don't need to know git in that world the cli git commands the linux git commands so the same like you know linus who invented linux used git he also invented that and created that to version and source control the Linux um, project as he was developing it. I just wanted to throw that out there, mm -hmm. but the history of Git, right? So I developed in VS Code and it's all GUI point and clicks. So for me to do a Git commit to push code back to the TFS repository mm -hmm. with a comment, it's like a click and a comment and yeah, a save which, and a, right. Like I haven't spent much time with VS Code. I happen to use uh, JetBrains PyCharm because I do okay. a lot of Python work. That was a natural evolution, and it's the same kind of thing. Once you set right. up your Git repo, it detects that you've got code and there's a repo that's been built. From there, committing, checking out, branching, etc. With Git, or if it's even a GitHub repo that you've got, it's all it's all in the GUI now. It, I don't have there. to be at the command line, you know, thumping out uh, Git CLI stuff. I don't want to dismiss knowing. So I, I actually open up in VS Code. You can have a terminal and a shell open. I do all my Git through the shell so that I, I learn some Git and I'm doing it at the command line. Because when I go to my Linux world and I run an Ansible playbook, because I can't run Linux, uh, Ansible on Windows, I have to go to a Linux, a RHEL box, a CentOS box, Ubuntu, whatever. That's my environment for running Ansible playbooks. So... I'll continue this thought, but we can come back to the Linux thought. Git there is not GUI-based, right? I'm at the CLI in Linux, sure, and I need yeah. to know Git pull, Git clone. So I'm not saying I'm an expert. I memorized my 12 Git commands yeah. in the order <laughs> so I need to run them. There's just a handful that you, that you can get by with, yeah. Right, yeah. right. So don't be intimidated that, but the power it gives you. So back to VS Code, and I'm going to put, you know, I'm plugging an extension, Git Lens. I didn't write it. I love it, though. I can call up split screen and write in line in my code, and it gives me the Git-related metadata around a, a line of code or a file, right? So right in my editor, I can look, step through the history of a file or a line of code, and it actually highlights and says, you know, developer three committed this line yeah, in it, this it, commit. It's integrated so in the editor. What we have had historically, which is oh. you've got something like, uh, I don't know, uh, SolarWinds, for example, that goes and pulls right. the configs for you and saves them. In the morning, you get a diff report and you can see what's different. But you don't really right. have long-term history. At least you didn't. It's been a while since I've used that specific tool. But right. it was a little, you know, it was okay. You could kind of know from one day to the next what's changed. But to have that history and who made the changes and so on, that's a different thing. Yeah, it's very, it's been very powerful. And when I, I don't want to say sell this, but when I try to explain this to people, to me, there's so many, it's not just about the configuration management, right? Or being able to run a show interface status on 2000 routers through and get a, get a text file back for each router. 
easily doable, by the way. Uh-huh. That's like, you can do that in five minutes with Ansible. Like that's the power of these automation tools. But the real power is, is in this Git repo that the software development te- team will open my eyes to, right? John, like you go away for three weeks, come back, look at the history of pull requests, look at all the code that's been merged in. Oh, I see so-and-so added a route three days ago related to this work item, uh-huh. related to this pull request. It's all there, right? So that all, like, what's the knee-jerk reaction when there's the problem? P1 comes my way and I get still get them frequently. What changed? That's the light bulb yeah. that goes off in everyone's Always. head immediately, right? What has changed? And And good luck, good luck without these new tools finding out what has changed yeah. on a large enterprise network over time or or even right okay we, i know thursday nights the change window friday mornings are a little rough i got a cup of coffee i'm ready for my p1s you know operations has been doing things the night before mm-hmm. and now the state the next day is degraded in some way right how do you link those dots together without version and source control right so, if you're looking at so yeah, with, with version and source control now this git approach this dev oriented approach when you're thinking that way do you think that makes config management a solved problem i yes i i think so i configuration management i think is it if you have the right approach and if you look at it as infrastructure as code right i've even tried to stop saying network automation because I don't want to leave out compute and storage because you can do, you know, it's the same tools, the same APIs, same frameworks. It really is infrastructure as code. Your firewalls do them this way as well. Load balancers, no problem. So once you have, you know, um, in my opinion, you have to build the toolkit first. You need the right tools Uh first. And we've talked about Git, we've talked about VS Code and a front end, a GitHub. You can make private GitHub repos now. When I started, you couldn't. That's why I shied away. Yeah. But you can yeah, easily yeah, make yeah. private repos now, right? Very easy, yeah. Um, or, or go spin up a 30-day DevOps uh, trial and then start using DevOps for your repo. Whatever it, you'd like, right? It's DevOps the point of to yeah. start start doing start doing things this way. So you have it's, to make yeah, data it's, models. It's, it's, it's the tooling, but it's then using those tools and developing a process to use those tools, understanding what's really going on. Sometimes yeah. checking things in and out of Git, it's like you, you got to kind of do it a bunch of times to kind of get it in your head. Okay, I just checked this out. Now I'm working on it. Now I'm going to check it back in or or it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a pull request or it's a merge right. or whatever whatever the operation is you're doing on that code. It's a, it is a different way of thinking about it, especially it if is. you're used to like spreadsheets or notepad. You know, it's just. Right, right. Or even those raw config files, right? What's your source of truth? Uh, I go and I do a show run. What do you mean? What's my source of truth? Right. <laughs> like, no, no, no that's no, that that's is... not a source of truth, right? That That's a running configuration, right? Yes, that's but a source that, of reality. Some, that, some people don't not. conflate those things. They don't. What do you like? Sort no, no. My sources are yeah. I've got a hundred routers. I got a hundred running configs. There's my source of truth, right? No, no, it's well, not. Okay, so actually, John, this this is a perfect place for us to define state. So we started yeah, this podcast talking about so. state and proving that the state of the network is what it is when we've made right. some sort of a configuration change. So okay, right. Define state for us. Okay, so when I think of state, and I've done some homework, right, as, as the good network engineer I did, I am, what does the IEEE say about state? What does the IETF say about state? Has anyone else ever defined state accurately? And I did find a paper called The Framework for Network State Management and Next Generation Internet Architecture from December 20, 2008, excuse me. Um, and their definition is to treat state like virtual memory, 
for the just how to treat state, not to define it. And it has a three-dimensional framework, a space dimension, an addressing mapping, and an access mechanism. Oh, you just like, lost it's everybody. Very, you better explain I've this. I've lost everybody. <laughs> this is very technical paper. So I thought to myself, what's a more practical definition of state? When was I introduced to state? And for me, it was actually on a, PIX, a Cisco PIX firewall, um, which I cut my teeth on. Oh, um, Pix, a brother from another mother. Oh, man. Yeah. I got a cat named Pix just because of that. <laughs> oh, oh, really? That's that? oh, incredible. Yeah. So I still remember, right, the, the guy who taught me Pix. High to low is, right, uh, or low to high, you must deny, and high to low is good to go. Something, something like that, yeah. So it had a stateful firewall capability, mm-hmm. meaning it could track something leaving the firewall, track the state of that return connection and automatically let it through, which seems like nothing today. But at the time, that was a dramatic breakthrough for for internet connectivity and and enterprise firewalling. So there's that kind of state. There's representational state APIs, REST. Mm -hmm. And I think REST is the best definition of state if we can think about it. And, And this world has opened up to us. We'll talk about that a bit later. But the RESTful state of versus, say, SOAP, or XML, we're talking about JSON and 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 RESTful representation of your state. So the counters or errors yeah. or the, the right. configuration. JSON, basically a key value pair. You've got a key and some number that's associated with it. So that key value pair is a representation of state. When I was queried, this is the this is the key and this is the value associated with it. State. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there's also like in the Cisco. Uh, compute right on supervisors. We've got the stateful switchover uh-huh. SSO, and we've got nonstop forwarding and uh, NFS. That and is then where even the, the, like the state of the forwarding table is maintained during like a switchover from one soup to another. You don't have to rebuild your forwarding tables from scratch. You have that state mirrored in the uh, in that stateful switchover process. Right, which is uh, you know I I have four supervisors. Right, I, I I never expect to lose a packet if I lose any of those four, or if I lose one half of my shelf. That's my expectation of that state. Yeah, I was gonna say you going expect to that. Be, yeah, <laughs> I expect that. Right, and the worst thing I see, you know, the major upgrade that doesn't allow in-service upgrades, and I actually have to bring down a full shelf that disrupts state. Mm. Right, ah, oh, no, it's it doesn't just. I can't just upgrade one soup and and then it fails over to the other soup and right. So it depends on your. Uh, of the type of upgrade there, right? But but the state is kind of well-defined for us, right? So I think of the configurations, um, and it's it's the sum of its parts, right? The whole represents the sum of all of these parts down to every interface that's, that's configured, the global configure of every switch and router, right? How they're all interconnected. We have the OSI model that we can overlay on top of this idea of state so we can conceptualize. Yeah. We'll be back to the podcast discussion shortly, but come with me for a couple of minutes while we talk about network automation and related tasks like configuration management. Network automation is, depending on how you define it, hard. Maybe you don't have the time or the interest to learn Ansible and Python and then create your very own Rube Goldberg machine, and I don't blame you at all. There is nothing wrong with that. I oscillate between wanting to control everything myself and just wanting to get the job done, and I bet you do too, and sponsor Unimus feels our pain. 
Unimus is an automation and config management solution made for, for us, for network engineers, not developers. They believe that networkers don't have to be developers. I mean, some of you maybe you want to be developers, and that's fine, but you shouldn't have to be a developer in order to automate. So what is this thing Unimus has made? Well, think of Unimus as turnkey automation, as opposed to something like Ansible, which is more like Lego bricks. With Unimus, you can go from nothing to deploying a VLAN to 100 switches in about 15 minutes. Unimus handles more than automating configuration tasks, though. They also take care of configuration and change management, as well as config backup. Here's a neat idea. Unimus runs on-premises. Kind of makes sense, since that's where much of your network is, but have you noticed how everyone wants to manage your infrastructure from the cloud these days? Anyway, let's say your network is a little odd or is managed by multiple groups. Well, fear not. Unimus supports multi-vendor networks with over 140 vendors supported and is also multi-tenant. So go try Unimus and see if they are what you're after for network automation and config management. Do that. Unimus.net slash packet pushers. You can get a two-week unlimited license paired with a technical demo call to get you started. That's Unimus.net slash packet pushers. U-N-I-M-U-S.net slash packet pushers. And our thanks to Unimus for sponsoring today's episode. And now, back to the discussion. I mean, I, I want to differentiate something though, John. I mean, I think you can have a configuration which is an intent that does not right. necessarily reflect state. Like going back to your source of truth comment earlier on, what is truth? Well, truth is what the state is, is what's actually happening on the network. So for just, for example, you could have, you could intend to have an OSPF neighbor adjacency come up, but if the other side is not also configured for that OSPF adjacency to come up, you may intend it, that may be in your config, but that's not what actually right. happened. That's not your state if the other side was not configured for that OSPF adjacency to come up. You'll have one side configured, one side not. Your state is no OSPF adjacency between the two. I completely agree that that you have to differentiate between that configuration, the, the full configuration management, the sum of all these parts, and it's resulting. It's almost like that uh, the Windows thing, right? The resultant set of policies. It's so the resultant set of configurations, right? The R SOC, I guess. Is this it gives us this state now? Is it a healthy state? Is it our intended state? Mm -hmm. I think even those are different things. I can have a fully healthy, no alarms, no syslogs, no SNMP traps, completely humming along network that doesn't really reflect what I want it to do, though. Oh, but this traffic from this secure zone is actually able to get out to the internet. I don't intend that. I don't exactly. want that. That's that's not what I want to happen. Yep. But that's what's happening, and it's happy to do it. These network devices, right? Like, it's almost like the code and the programming. You're, they'll do what you tell them to do. And they're happy to do the wrong thing all the time for years and years. It will happily forward that unsecured traffic out to the internet against your intent and your will. So start so, with the managing of the configurations, right? So to me, that means data models, modeling data. And that's going to be a YAML file and a collection of YAML files. Well, well, and so then, we, we back up, back up. We got to set yes. up some, some context here. So yes. if managing config is important to this, yes, because that helps us establish intent. Right. That is, we need to know what we mean for the network to be doing so that we've got something to measure that state against. Measuring right. the state, as you say, it could be humming along. But if the intent is for it to have a secure zone that can't get to the internet and it can get to the internet, well, that sucks. So... So, right. so, so how do you take the config and abstract it in such a way 
that we can programmatically analyze it and determine that the state of the network is uh, matching the intent of the network as defined by the config, which takes us to now you're talking about YAML files and stuff. So, right. Okay. So I think, again, I just want to connect that dot to first, maybe some people don't know how to establish their intent or, or a source of truth, right? So I don't want to go too fast into missing the dots between how do I get, but how do I get the, how do I do a configuration management, John, right? Like you're talking about intent-based config management so that I can have an intended state that I can measure and test and validate against. Um, I think you have to break it down into infrastructure as code. So your data models, right, are going to contain key pair values and lists. They're not very complicated. In fact, they shouldn't be complicated. They should be human readable. It, it shouldn't be. So just, just for people that are scared right now, because you just said right. key value pairs, and we mentioned right. a little bit earlier. Yeah. Think of this as a different way to represent a show run. Um, if right. you are used to typing in CLI commands and building configuration stanzas, what are some other ways that you could represent that data that you're typing in with those commands? Well, you could have a database-like uh, key value pair store that basically has all of the same things. So that that's what we're really talking about here. Don't freak out if you're freaking out. Right. And here's where I start, here's where I start every time. So it's not, you can't just, it doesn't just uh, materialize. You still need the CLI to develop the, the nice lines of config that generate working state, right? So you're going to do that at the CLI. You're not going to jump right to automation. You're going to start with, I need to add NetFlow. I need to add 802.1x. I need to add a QoS model. Whatever it is you're going to do, you need the valid iOS, NXOS, Junos, Arista commands to make it work. So start with that, and then it's very easy. It, it's, almost, it's almost too easy. I have a show run. And I put that into a file called uh, template.j2. I make that a Jinja2 file. And then I comb over it and see, okay, VLAN and then a number, right? There is a good example of a key pair and a value. So I translate that to a data model and say, okay, now I'm going to make a list of VLANs in a model and loop over them with a for loop in my template so that I always, every single time, generate valid iOS or NXOS or whatever configuration that then I can push out automatically, right? And then you're just looking, you're working with code now. I have work, I have data models and templates. How do I make sure you, you could you configure, I don't know, what's the scale? What is, where does the scale tip um, that you could actually handle something manually? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. at a hundred routers, could you actually configure a hundred routers? correctly, manually, handcrafted, perfectly every time, I would challenge to say no, right? You, you, um, the, the higher the number of devices are you're physically, you're manually touching and interacting with one at a time, at some point you will make a mistake. It's just a matter of time. You're right. going to be at the wrong interface. You're going to be in the wrong context. You're going to be in the wrong VRF, and you're going to put right. something in incorrectly. Right. It's, it will happen. And. And that's not to say that, um, so there's two points I want to make. One is that it's not about scale. I don't want anyone with a small network to brush this off and say, I don't need to automate. I've only got a router and a couple switches. That's, that's even better to automate. It's even more simplistic, right? It just happens to lend itself to scale. If that you take that one router to 500 routers, it's just templates, like a cookie cutter. I truly mean templates. It's not a loaded word. It's not a complex word. I don't want network engineers. To, you know, I, I'm talking about templating. It's, it's simple. You take a, a framework of a running config, 
you extract all of the data model stuff, VLANs and IP addresses and routes and access control lists and uh, whatever, you put it into data models and the two make your config, right? So now, now some people are going to be intimidated because you're saying data models and this kind of thing. Right. So w- one point we need to, to articulate here, you sound like you're making your own data models, um, uh, but there are also industry standard data models yes. for networking. A lot of uh, models written in the Yang, in, in written yes. in Yang by the IETF uh, or by the Open Config Group, et cetera. Could you comment on those? It's a good point. I'm actually in the middle of transitioning. So even the tools we're using now are ever evolving. So, you know, Ansible at the time is on my older platforms was limited to serial SSH commands, right? It wasn't an API. I was SSHing in and running a bunch of commands serially, which is, I don't want to diminish that capability. But now that I have newer platforms that actually have a REST conf API, uh, you know, the Catalyst 9000 series, for example, mm-hmm. I can easily, in a command or two, enable the REST comp capability. If I have AAA running on the switch, that's it. You can start using Postman against the switch. And it's just incredible because it's RESTful. And, oh, you know, you mentioned like, another tool, Postman. Another so. <laughs> tool. I, I, yeah, another tool. But um, it lets you interact with just like... Um, like you mentioned, the Yang model, I don't have to invent my own model, right? So yeah. the, the, the advantage of, of REST as, as a framework, it's not a protocol. SOAP is an old protocol. It's P, right? Yeah. Protocol. REST is just a loose collection of developers doing things their own way, which doesn't really fly in the structured world of routers and switches. And I have 48 interfaces yeah. and, yeah. right? So now we come along with a Yang framework that says, okay, here's a little yeah. bit of a loose framework that structures the JSON so it's not the Wild West router by router, iOS by iOS. Um, the nice thing is these models are on GitHub. Like Cisco's opened the door for this open world. It's really remarkable. And I'm saying Cisco because that's the world I live in. But Arista's doing the same thing. Juniper's doing the same thing. They're opening the doors to their APIs. Like yeah. these are private giants. That's that's great intellectual stuff. And they're just giving it away. You just have to start to learn to use the new tools. So when I say Postman, it's new to me as well, relatively speaking. It's like, to me, it reminds me of Netscape Navigator. It's like it has the sidebar Mm -hmm. and I have to put in, in the old Netscape days, you had to put in the actual HTTP string you wanted um, to get to a web page. And so it's sort of like that, except it's against an API. So I have my switch. I've got 48 interfaces. I can make an HTTP get request against the API and get a restful response of JSON data, so structured data that gives me the status of interface one or the routing table or whatever. You, you just summed up that, that so well what, what RESTful is all about. People hear that if they haven't never done it before, maybe it seems mysterious, but it just isn't at all. It's a, no. essentially an HTTP formatted GET request. You say, hey, uh, API listener on the other end, this is the thing I want. Oh, you want this thing? And let's assume you're authorized and authenticated. I'm going to give you back a chunk of data. And that chunk of data is a, a blob of JSON or it's one one key value pair. More likely, it's a, it's a whole chunk of key value pairs. And now you've got this structured data that's come back to you and you could do something with it. It's incredible. And then 
I shied away from APIs. Like I, I, I don't. I take Cisco uh, Prime infrastructure as just as an example, right? It's an it's a, a management tool, and it and it has an API. It's always had an API. I've used it since Cisco Works. So Cisco Works to Cisco Land Management Server to Cisco Prime infrastructure, and I'm just starting to use the API. And I feel like, um, you know, I, I I feel like I've been doing it a disservice because the information I get through the API is just it's just incredible. So I can make a, a, a request to tell me, you know, the state of my wireless access points. And I get a nice JSON report back so, that tells me in structured data the state of my wireless. It sounds like we just we just tied this back to how these APIs and that structured data we get back help us with uh, the automation of state validation. So what you're saying is you're just giving this example of uh, talking to these WAPs. You're gonna right. you're making an API call. Uh, you're getting back in from you know, structured data that now you can check programmatically and make sure that the state is what you want. Yes, that's the, you've you nailed it. So in this example, and again, take an API as an abstraction. Whatever is behind the API is behind it. It's a it's a load balancer. It's a firewall. It's a switch. It's a router. It's a web page. Right? Abstract that. You can get structured JSON back. And and the importance of that is, remember your old show run command or show interface status or show IP interface brief, mm -hmm. and you get the, what do you call that? That's not structured data that you get back no, from I those mean, it's, commands. Right. It's formatted on the screen in columns with a header or whatever, but right, oh. if you use that in Python and you, you, you suck that chunk of text back in, you need a parser to parse through it and make, right. turn it into something structured because it comes back to you unstructured if you're using like NetMeco. Right, and I'll, I'll, we'll talk about parsing in a second, but the difference is now I get the structured JSON back. So I can make an API call. So if you're an Ansible fan or if you're wondering about Ansible, I'm using an, a universal module. So it's a URI module. So if there's, right, with Ansible, I can automate basically anything with an Ansible-specific module, iOS underscore config for Cisco or uh, whatever, right, or this universal URI module if they have a REST, if your service offers a RESTful API and you get JSON structured data back and it's incredible. So I'm getting 3000 wireless access points. That's my footprint. That's not, I, you know, I don't know if that large or medium, but that's pretty big. There's a lot of wireless <laughs> access points, a lot of data, yeah. uh, right? And I get 76 pieces of information about each access point in structured programmatic data. Right, so I do this pass, boom, go get all the data. And then I can look at the key field that says cap WAP status, down, huh? boo, loop over that and tell me how many APs of the 3,000 have the key cap WAP status dot, you know, or cap WAP status colon down. Now, what tool are you using to do that looping iteration? Are you using Python or are you using something uh, else? No, I'm just using uh, Ansible. Okay. I'm just using Ansible to do that, yep. And it's a when, so I do like an Ansible when I don't get a 404. So if the if the switch is in prime, you get a 200 back on your first get, then pass that switch along and get all of the wireless access points that are connected to it. Uh, this is up on DevNet Exchange and GitHub, by the way, what I'm talking about. I've made this public. Feel free to go take it and use it. I, I love it. Um, so then the next step about state, right? So I have captured the state. I can run this every four hours, every eight hours. I know through Git, through my history, through version control, 
here's the 10 APs that were down yesterday that are now back up, or you've lost 100 APs since the last run of this report. Automatically track through Git version. Like I, I don't have to do anything. So then what's the next step? And, and I haven't done this yet. This is theory and just thinking ahead. <laughs> I could run a second Ansible step to go over all of those CapWap down, go to the key pair value. So the key is the key and a paired value just to break down, right? Host name, switch. The key is there is host name and the paired value is switch. switch. So I look upstream to the key pair value for the switch and the connected interface and I do a shut, no shut on those interfaces. What's the first thing a human would do to fix a, for, fix a down AP? You bounce the port to see yeah. if it picks up power and, and a DHCP and it makes a cap wap. Yeah. So now I've just done that. Every four hours, go ahead, scrape my network for down APs, and then bounce the ports if you find them. And then and that's whatever logic you want. Because I have a Jinja template, I could actually, you know, so I bounce the port and it doesn't come back. Okay, shut the port, default the port, apply my templated config to the port, and then bring it back up. Let's see if reconfiguring the interface automatically restores the service. So now we have a self-healing wireless infrastructure. And it's not hard to do. It's through an API call or two and some, you know, if-else logic, right? The, the, the caveat being you do need to think through extenuating circumstances and make sure your logic is uh, robust uh, so you <laughs> yeah. don't end up doing something that would you know, cause an outage because you didn't think of some circumstance or corner case where my, you're, yeah. My first th the first thing my colleague said was, what if Prime loses connection to the WLC, but all of the APs are still up? Do you really want to bounce all 3,000 interfaces automatically in the middle of the day for no reason? And <laughs> exactly. so, no, I don't. No, I don't. What, that's not, to our earliest point, that's not my intent. Right? So this is like when, when you hear the horror stories about, you know, AI is going to kill humanity because that's how AI figures out the best way to establish peace on earth is, right? <laughs> if there was no humans, everything would be fine. I don't want, you have to be very careful with this stuff. Um, because of blast radius, right? The, I love that term, right? So the closer you get to a central controller like the WLC or the core of your network, the larger the blast radius, the bigger the impact on your state can be, right? So um, you mentioned parsers earlier. And um, yep. so the parser that jumps to everyone's mind is regex, usually, regular expressions, right? And uh, so there's actually from Usenet, from the old Usenet days, uh, 1997, I found this quote, uh, a person has a problem and they decide to use regex to fix that problem. Now they have two problems, <laughs> right? So that's, that's <laughs> the adversity of regular expressions, right? It's just, it's, it's not something you really want to be doing. Uh, regex101.com, trying string after string after string. Now, what I'm talking about and what we're talking about is taking that unstructured or semi-structured show IP interface brief, and I get the table view and the headers back. I have to parse that string or parse each string using regular expressions of formula to go against and extract the word up because I want to see if the interface is up or not, right? And it's, it is as complicated as it sounds. And I'm not advocating for it. I mean, you're talking about in the Ansible context, having to write regular expressions and, there, and, yes. and the complexity of regex because it's so powerful, but it takes a while to get your expression right. 
Um, you know, so you can deal with that data in a structured way in Ansible. But for what it's worth in Python, there is a library that'll do much of this for you. Uh, NTC-Templates, I think is the name. The Network to Code okay. team has, has written a lot of these where right. if, you, if it knows the command that you sent to the device, it uh, has a template parser built in to parse that output and give you back structured data. It's pretty freaking wonderful. Awesome. So in... In the Cisco world, or and it's not just Cisco, but there's a new, relatively new parser called Genie Parser. Yes. Yep. And um, the Genie Parser is part of a new library, um, the Cisco Testing Automation Solution. Um, right. CTAS seems to me like like a no brainer to call that cats. And and anyway, they call it, they didn't call it cats for some reason. They should have just called it cats, but it's CTAS. Anyway, I I love this new framework and it ties into the state validation and doing it automatically. Right. So you're going to move up this pyramid of I need to establish a toolkit. I need to establish connectivity to all these devices with that toolkit. So get my Ansible connection strings, vaulting passwords, all of that secure connectivity infrastructure you need. Or to an API call, you might need an OAuth 2 structure. You just said vaulting right? passwords. Does that mean where yes. you keep your secrets so that yeah. you're storing so your connect- like enable passwords, username, pass, whatever. You're bingo, storing those bingo. securely. You need to access the vault that you keep those secure those things securely stored and pass them into your script so that you're not doing things like in plain text, I would like to pass into my script usernames and passwords because that's, that's bad. Right. So... Yeah, let's talk about that real quick. So because you're using a Git, um, you know, all this stuff is going to be in Git and version control, distributed programming. You don't want naked strings or or sensitive DNS records or keys, SSH keys. There's a lot of things you don't want to keep um, in the naked format unencrypted in a Git repo, regardless of if it's your private repo or not. You don't want your enable password string floating around Git repos, okay? So there's a couple ways you can deal with this. Up to date, I've used prompted mechanisms. So I've done a real hybrid approach to automation where I still have humans running the Ansible playbooks and reviewing the playbooks Mm -hmm. and interacting with things. I haven't fully moved to, like I'm in progress to a CI CD through Docker containers and we'll talk about that, but I'm not there yet. It's a hybrid approach where I have humans writing playbooks and humans running playbooks. So to that point, I have a prompted mechanism where that human gets prompted for the username and enable secret. And then in my vault, it's a variable. So I've hidden that password effectively. But if you want to move to CICD or something where these playbooks run in containers without human intervention, you can't really have a prompted mechanism, right? But you can't really pass that string in naked either. So you use a vaulting mechanism, and it's it's actually a lot easier than I thought. I kind of shied away from it because I had my prompting thing working, and I kind of put vaulting on a shelf. But it's actually very powerful where you make a, you know, you encrypt an actual variable. And then in your Git repo, it's just garbage, right? It's just mm-hmm. garbled text. So it's safe to keep publicly or in a repo like that, right? So you're going to have um, the vaulted secrets or your vaulted keys in your Git repo. Um, so that way you can run these playbooks non-interactively. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Now the genie parsers and the, uh, 
is part of this framework we talked about. It's also part of a, a library that has kind of three tiers itself. And the second tier is PyAts, which is um, Python. You started talking about Python mm -hmm. a little bit. Python automatic testing solution. And again, we're in the Cisco world, just so that everybody we're remembers the, the context well, of this conversation is CTAS, Cisco Testing Automation Solution. Yes. And, and to the Genie parsers, there are F5 parsers, yep. Linux parsers, Junos parsers, uh, all different flavors of Cisco parsers. And then up this ladder of CTAS, you can start writing your own Python tests using the Genie parsed JSON data that, that the commands get back. So you write the show whatever commands you want with pipes as complex as you want the commands to be. And if there's a matching parser for those commands, you can write tests, Boolean tests, to see whether or not CRC errors is greater than zero. If it is, mark that as a failed test. Again, the whole genie and the parser thing, this goes back to like the NTC templates thing I was talking about. You're doing a show command, you're getting something that's a human readable, but not structured data. The parser turns it into structured data. Now you can write exactly. tests and do things with it. Yes, and then that's exactly what they've released as well. So this, so the PIATs, like for example, um, there's a solutions example repo that they have five or six pre-canned tests that you can use to get started, which I think is to their credit because um, I don't write Python yet. I'm learning. I'm, you know, it's been 20 years since I did my computer programming days. Uh, I have to, you know, I have to ramp up on my Python. So they've given this, like, here's a bunch of examples you can use. And, and it's available in the DevNet sandbox now as well. Just as of this, like this is bleeding edge. As of this week or last week, um, Pyats and Genie became part of the upstream Ansible. So it's all built into Ansible now. So you can use Ansible automation to scale your Pyats tests using the Genie parsers to get to transform the commands. Now that's very powerful that, you know, if you've got 500 routers and you want to parse the show rib table from all 500 and get a good sense of whether or not the state of your network matches your intent, that's hard to do for that, a human, right? Well, but it's even hard to do programmatically. I mean, in, in the sense that you've got to write your tests and your logic in such a way that you know you're actually getting back the information required to confirm your state. And th there could be a lot to that. Yes. Yes. I think, I think it's about the evolution of our instrumentation, right? Like we're actually starting to get scientific levels of instrumentation um, you know, Python and machine learning and uh, immutable Docker containers. It's it's becoming much more uh, accessible, the state of our network, right? Like, yes, you're still going to rely on those show commands from yesterday. But imagine being able to run them and analyze them and give a past state Boolean variable, you know, state test automatically at a cadence that just runs, you know? You as a network engineer, like like when I said in the intro, I was talking about like you do a show IPOSPF and look at your neighbor state, whatever it is, and right. get to a point of like, I'm confident the state is what I intended. Now you've got to programmatically take your brain that knows what it wants to see as far yes. as state goes, put it in a script and write all the tests. You're talking about Booleans. So you, you, you're validating that variables are what you want them to be and so on. So that at the end of that, that script doing its running, you've got a result set that tells you what your brain would have told you looking at show commands. 
uh, awesome once you get there, especially when you're trying to deal with hundreds or thousands of devices that might need to be queried to reflect that state. Right. But, but once you get there, incredibly valuable. I can see the excitement in and how lit up you are because that's how I feel about it right now. I really am like, this is amazing. So two streams. I'm attacking this from two streams. So the third tier of this um, uh, CTAS, the, the Cisco Tested Automation Solution, is the business logic where, where they've given you a GUI, and it's free to just use, and it's in the sandbox as well, called Expresso. So Expresso lets you, to your point, take that vision of, of in my mind, I know what I want to test and how I want to test it and the order I want it tested in and use a, a nice GUI-based job definition, scheduling of the test, GUI-based reports, whether or not your test pass or fail. So I'm going to have that ongoing. Test it every six hours. What does the BGP look like? You can make baselines. So you want to test from a healthy state. So obviously, you know, establish that healthy state. <laughs> Test it once and say, okay, snapshot that first test result. That's my baseline, baseline of a healthy state. Now test against it with the same set of tests. So it's item potent testing, immutable testing, every six hours, every 12 hours, whatever the cadence you want. Oh, failure. I've lost a BGP neighbor somewhere. I've lost an OSPF neighbor somewhere. I can't ping a certain IP. Um, and when we say test every so often, what we mean is you're now taking this script of commands, show commands, whatever they are. You're parsing out the results. You're comparing them against what things should be your baseline. And then right. you know if there's a diff or not and can then react to that situation. Yeah, exactly. Send an email, send an alarm, turn the yet turn the green button red, right? And then you can interact with it through an API call. So I can use again Postman to check my Expresso front end for failures, recent test failures, all through a REST API. Right? Yeah. You can automate your automation and it becomes very inception-like where you don't know what's real and what you're automating and what's virtual. And it becomes, you know, it it can be completely let's say complex. I don't want to say complicated because I don't feel it's very complicated, but it certainly has a level of complexity, which isn't bad, right? We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor, Interoptic. Interoptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based OEM agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. Interoptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. Well, what, what would you say to people that, because you mentioned just red light, green light, some people are like, 
dude, John, why I have an NMS and I can I do SNMP stuff. And it's kind of yeah. the same as what you're talking about. I can do an SNMP query. I can get some number back and I can set thresholds and do alarming. I can do red light, green light on interfaces and a bunch of things. Why right. would I go to all this trouble? I face the same questions. And here's my, here's my personal opinion of it. I'm looking at it with today's tools like a third party, right? I'm taking Cisco Prime Infrastructure or Solar Winds or what Tool X, Appliance X, and I'm monitoring the state externally. Like, like I'm not in the flow. I'm looking at it f- from the third party's perspective. So yes, that third party can ping and get SNMP polling every five minutes and get traps and get syslogs. That's about the limitation of what you can do unless you're, you know, handcrafting something, which gives you a certain level of confidence. I would agree. I'm not dismissing that or saying that this is going to displace it. But what I like is that you're shelling into the router. Like I'm shelling into the router and doing a show command from the perspective of the router. Can the router do a ping to 2222? Can the SVI in my secure zone do a ping to 2222. Bad news, right? That's a failed test if it can. I'm in that persona of the SVI or the routing table, and I can test from that perspective. Now, there's other advances. Um, So I immediately, I thought, well, what if I stick a bunch of Raspberry Pis out there? The network engineer in me takes over, right? Can I check a bunch of probes out there? And what if I could log into my probe Mm-hmm. And test from its perspective, right? So now I'm not doing, it's not even synthetics. It's truly logging into a Linux kernel that sits in a subnet on your network. And you can say, okay, I, I know that this subnet needs to reach some critical app front end. Okay, so I write a PIATS test that does a curl and evaluates whether or not I get a 200 back or a 404 back, mm-hmm. right? From the client in the subnet in real time with real pass-fail reporting. No more waiting for users to tell you the internet's down. I know the internet's down. My <laughs> test started failing three minutes ago, right? I'm ahead of that wave of calls now. At least I bought myself maybe three minutes before someone notices that the internet's down from that op zone, right? Um, so, so do you see the subtle it's, – it's a subtle difference there, but do you see the advantage over, say, these traditional NMSs, right? Well, I, I mean, I don't even think it's subtle. I think it's a very uh, big deal. You know, in the early days, we had you know, various tests you could run on a Cisco device. I'm totally spacing out on the name of the, the functions now. But uh, you could determine, is you know this route accessible? And then... Uh, right. Well, they have the IPSLA, right? I think IPSLA yeah. is probably as close to this as we've got. And, and they were right? limited. And it varied from iOS to iOS, what you could do with them and so on. And, and they were not systematic. They were just kind of from a device and not replicable everywhere. And it was a nice tool, yeah. you know, for some specific use cases. But... What what we're really saying here is when you're talking about automated state validation, you're you're taking a step back, looking at the network as a whole and designing a system that can be extended infinitely, really, if if you're willing to take the time and put the logic in to demonstrate that your network, however complex it might be, is doing exactly what it needs to be doing at any given point in time. And having that be a very, once you've got it built, uh, a fairly hands-off thing. That's different from what an NMS does, uh, for, for sure, which, again, as I, th- I think you stressed a really important point. 
That NMS is looking at things from the NMS's perspective. It sits here in the management network or whatever we built on the network, right. and it goes out and it reaches out and pulls, and maybe you've got out of band, and maybe you don't, and yeah, and so on. But it's it's this point in time thing. If you can find the SNMP OID that you even want to query, good luck. Then you got to know how to interpret that data and so on. And so it's it tells you things. It's it's far from useless. I mean, it's right. useful. There's value there. But like but I, I still, I'm still going to rely on my MRTG graphing. Sure. As an yeah. example of an SNMP old school tool that I'm not throwing that out. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying these tools are, are, are going to be maybe displaced or not. But um, what I think is neat is we have an evolving ecosystem. So one thing I just played with when I was talking about robots and probes Security doesn't like that, right? I'm not clearly I'm not going to be able to go put a hundred Linux desktops out there. That's not feasible. So how could I do this, right? Um, on the 9K platform, they have the x86 capability now. So they have what they call application hosting. And I just unboxed this and I just played with it. And and am I ever impressed? So take your standard 48 port switch. Now imagine if you had a port 49 that was ephemeral, virtual, doesn't really live there, mm -hmm. but it connects into an x86 space where you can host Docker container images mm -hmm. of any app of whatever flavor you like. Now to me, this is, this is like, wow. So what I did is a little mock-up. I spun up a Linux, uh, and it was very easy, a Linux Docker container that I you know, make a tar file out of and copy to the flash drive of the switch, install the app, start the app. Mm -hmm. That's as simple as it was. I had to configure that front panel interface, they call it, and make it a trunk port, and then tag the VLAN of my container to one of the trunked VLANs. So I put a virtual machine, a Linux uh, container image, in my op zone. So then I'm, I'm like, is this really going to work, right? So I've got my DHCP um, MMC open, and boom, I see an IP address in the scope appear, and it's this Linux container, and I can ping it. And they gave you enough CPU, enough x86, that you're not scared about running a container that crushes the switch? Um, it's funny. I actually, there's as I learned and as I was refining this, I said, okay, well, well, now let me try to spin up a second container in a different VLAN on the same switch, right? And I, so I tag a new VLAN trunk, and um, right, you're at a CPU. I, I you've you've used too much CPU, so then you actually can tune it. So there's a line oh. in your virtual container that says CPU, and I made it 25. Memory, I gave it 256. Um, hard disk space, I gave it a little chunk of disk. Okay. So once I did that refinement, then I was able to spin up multiple containers. So, so Cisco's right? thought of this, in other words. The, the architecture yes. of the switch is such that, yeah, it's the control plane CPU you're sharing, it sounds like. It doesn't doesn't sound like they, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't sound like they gave you a separate CPU for this. I don't believe so. There's an iOS XE kernel, Okay. but I think it's still shared resources. Yeah, to, yeah. But, but they've throttled it or done resource sharing in such a way that it's impossible for you to, well, maybe if you allocate too many resources, you can kill the switch, but you know, it's a controlled thing. So you can safely do this. Yeah, it seems to be safe. And um, so, you know, people kind of say, well, so what? So like, what is that going to do for me? Well, for me, what I'm thinking about doing is, is using, tying it together with that CTAS testing solution 
And now I can go into a Linux box in a VLAN on my network and do automatic testing from a Linux perspective. Hmm. So any of the Linux commands that I can parse, I can run it through a Genie test that's on a virtual client. So for me, that means, you know, there's very sensitive material and sensitive applications that need to be up or, or you mm-hmm. know, I, you know, I can't, I can't really get into the, the the private specifics of my application stack. But you can imagine that, you know, uh, wouldn't it be great to know that the SharePoint farm is up from the developer's VLAN all the time? I'm just doing curls and I'm getting two hundreds back, and I know that application X is up or down at any point in time. The forensic tracing it gives me is incredible because I know I lost a ping. It's so sensitive the instrumentation too. Um, over those NMSs, hmm. you know, I can actually detect one ping drop, one loss fails my test. It's that sensitive. So now I can really do fine grain. Like, why am I dropping a ping on a 10 gig interface? Shouldn't be happening, right? Like, hmm. I shouldn't lose one single ping there in the middle of the day. Now, tell me any other system that's that finely tuned that will tell you you have actually lost a single ping between this point and this point at this point in time during this suite of tests. Um, so the state of our network is becoming accessible to us. And I think we're moving way up the stack now. So um, I mentioned the Docker containers. And I mentioned TFS and Azure DevOps and stuff. Um, this is my second use case for the PIATS testing that I'm doing. So I have that ongoing testing, the NMS-like stuff that goes. Now, you have said okay. Docker and containers a few times. Do I need to be scared because all of a sudden I have to know Docker now? I So it's funny. And when I um, did the Git pull for the Expresso install, one of their steps is now run this Docker command. And I just, the, the shock of panic hits my face. I don't know this tool. Uh, I know it's a whale. I know it's got a cool little whale logo. Um, right? Like, it's now at my front door, knocking at my door saying, now, you know, you got to know how to start a Docker container because Espresso runs in Docker. So, yes, I the, the, the scary answer is yes, I think network engineers, because your application developers, they want to start building things in containers. And how do you provide them IP addresses and routing and firewalling? And, and now the scary Kubernetes has come in because they want high availability and they want our Docker swarm and they want a collection of containers. It's here. I, I, if I'm the first person saying this to you out there in the world, I am sorry. Don't shoot the messenger. I hate this Capobianco guy. He's talking about <laughs> containers and Git and source of truth and YAML files. I'm <laughs> sorry. I, you know, um, but it's here. So, but the neat thing is, is that it's here. It's you can do some yeah. really powerful things with Docker, right? Oh yeah, and you, so, you can fire up Docker Desktop on just about any platform and start getting oh, familiar it, with the, the basics of it. The basis of it'll take you all of watch their Docker 101 tutorial, and you'll have uh, yeah half of what you need to know anyway. Yeah, yeah, more or less. So in in the Azure DevOps, I can, I have so I have my uh, my Ansible Git repo. We've talked about that. It's a Git repository that lives in Azure DevOps. It's a collection of folders and files, intended configs, playbooks, data models, templates, um, a host CNI file, whatever makes up an Ansible repo. Now, Ansible is the, the nesting dolls, right? We started with the CLI, and I know the commands I need to run, and I'm going to just automate those, so I'm going to wrap it in Ansible, right? Now, I'm wrapping the Ansible in Docker, so I don't need that human to log into the Linux box and run the Ansible playbook or go into Tower and schedule the job through my through my CI CD, we talked about Git. Mm-hmm. So when I do a pull request, 
it kicks off a build and and like like truly a software definition right build and release this is executables this is software you're talking software development now um, yes only, i am only you're building right? configuration that ansible is going to grab and do something exactly with. Yeah. yeah so what i'm building is a docker container with my ansible repo nested inside of it the ability to mount a volume to unvault my password to, to interact with my infrastructure through networking and firewalls and stuff. I still need all that in place. But my container, every time I do a pull request, refreshes, rebuild. He's added a route. And then it does a release, which is just running that container image. So then it's CICD. Like who I haven't called ops. I haven't done all I've, I've done an approved pull request through the pipeline mechanism. Someone's approved it. It runs the container, and now that route is magically added to the network. So where this the state validation component comes in, now that I have PIATs yeah. working in a container as well, as part of my release steps, I can say, okay, run these, run this PIATs container that consists of a BGP test, a curl, a mm -hmm. ping, an OSPF, whatever testing instrumentation I want. And then tell me that the test passed. They did. Great. Move on to the release step and release the config. And then rerun those tests post-release to capture the post-change state tested and validated automatically. Ah, and so it's one all... thing I just messed there, uh, missed there. Back up. You said in the CICD pipeline context that you were yeah. running the PIATS container running tests, and then you moved to release. So wait a minute, right. in that middle step, what did I just test against? Just, well, it's a capture of the current state, let's okay. say. Okay, okay. So I'm validating and testing before I touch anything, run all these commands, and, and the nice thing is they're all logged. So I can actually look into the routing table pre-change. Yep, there's my so 50 it's, routes it's, it's or whatever, right? It's almost like a snapshot, right? kind of a baseline yes. of where we're yes. at. Yeah, okay. It's a snapshot gotcha. where we're at, and then release through Ansible, add the route, add the VRF, yep. whatever I'm doing, then recapture the state. Now I have immutable artifacts, item potent, you know, change through the Ansible, but now I can test post. Now, if that test collapses because I can't reach the network, yep. that's a different story. I'm not saying I'm preventing a problem here. Well, well I'm well, just let's saying say, that let's I'm Let's say the capturing... test fails because right. something didn't go right. Can I right. roll back at that point? That's that's a great point. A, a tertiary step that rolls back the playbook or or releases a previous build in our case, right? This in the context of builds and releases, they all have a build and release number associated with them. So build five is my current build, and release five is my current release. We do build six, and it introduces mm -hmm. a problem. We now know roll back to build five, right? Go back to that item potent immutable working state that was the result of build and release five this is all the version control magic is part of this here yes yes as opposed to dig over your config changes and blah 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 no 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 just go back to the last release it's just like those executables and patches and software right patch 1.2 poisoned the app or right i started to get blue screens after i installed the 1.6 <laughs> of winamp or whatever yeah. right go back to 1.5 that's the sort of ability that we've been enabled with, doing it through infrastructure as code, source of truth, version control, intent-based networking, releases, tests, all of it, right? It gives us those tools that, that the software development team 
has had for 40 years in their in their field. Like I sort of came up with IT in a silo slash IS in a silo. And actually, I wanted to talk to you about this. It's sort of peripheral to this, but I read your um, wonderful newsletter article about <laughs> software tools versus becoming a software developer. Yeah. And um, I think there's more nuance there than maybe the Twitter sphere first read the article, or I'm hoping you could clarify maybe that maybe <laughs> so, so, what so you're... let's set this up for the audience if we're going to have this discussion. Okay. So I wrote an article. I think it, in, I, uh... it relates to the state. It relates it, to state it, validation and automation. So we're not, we're not too far off the discussion. I wrote an article in human infrastructure magazine newsletter, which you can get packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Just go subscribe. If you're interested in that, we send it out weekly. Um, I wrote a feature article that makes the argument. If you're a network engineer, your next career step is not you have to become a software developer because if it's infrastructure as code, by golly, we have to write code now and that's it. We're software developers. I argue that's not the case, that software development and software, you're going to use tools like software developer uses. You're not going to sit there and be you know, hammering out code all the time was, was my, my major argument. And actually, John, I think most of our conversation has, has supported that, but let's dig into the nuance. No, I so I wanted to hear that from you, and that was my understanding of it. When I took away the article, I said, you know, I think he's hit. I think he's dead on here, right? Like I'm not. I would never consider myself a software developer. I wouldn't describe myself as that. But I'm certainly using their tools and their methodologies yes. and their frameworks and and their approach to solving problems. Right? You're not doing all of your network automation in Python. You are using Ansible as a tool and then managing uh, the the playbooks and so on, the packages that you deal with Ansible using software development tooling, you're using Git, you're using you know, version yes. control, you've mentioned CICD pipelines, the ability to do a rollback, running tests to validate that the network state is there. You're still a network engineer, John. I know, but PIATS, that particular, I think I'm crossing a threshold where I'm neither. Mm -hmm. I, I'm something different now, something that needs a definition for HR, I guess. Um, my title is Senior Integrator and Planner, and I like that. I'm not a network anything or a software anything. I'm a planner and I integrate prop, you know, solutions that I've that I've developed. But so, so Pyath, I am in Python. I am in Python doing so imports for loops. I, I did make one more argument that uh, the average network engineer is going to spend less time doing coding and that some kind of a human that is really dedicated to the creation of tools would be a better fit there. Because if you're a software developer, that's a full-time gig. If you're a network right. engineer, that's a full-time gig. Right. It would be pretty difficult to do both. I'm wondering if you're, as you described it, maybe you're you're crossing, you're the phoenix, like in, uh, in X-Men. <laughs> You've transcended. You're something else right, now, right. John. Um, so uh, I think the network designers, anyone who's in that weird architecture Somewhere between architecting solutions and operating solutions, the the person who takes those visios and turns them into commands, right? I, that's sort of where I live and continue to live, just with a different set of tools. Hmm. I just don't want people to read the article, and I've seen a few people that I I have a great deal of respect for on you know in the Twitter sphere and the automation sphere, and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but Ethan did not say you don't have to write code. You don't have to learn code. You don't have to. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're not going to be a software developer by title. Yeah. IT and IS are not going to suddenly merge 
into just IS, yeah, where I, everything I, is I information in, systems. In fact, if you, right? if you read the whole article and not just whatever Twitter snippets and quotes were lifted out of the article, I, I actually make that point that, yeah, you might yes. write some code and yeah, you should learn like data modeling and APIs. There's a lot of value there, you know, but are you becoming a software developer full time? I was arguing. Uh, right. No. So yeah, I, I do feel like we're, we're in agreement, John. I, for, you know, so, so, so for example, I, I, I have to get back to it, but I've gotten busy, but on YouTube, I started a little series, just kind of showing people some very basic fundamental Python where you can just pull data out of the network and get it back. And when you get that data back, it gets really interesting. All the stuff that you could do that you couldn't do before in part, going back to your point, John, when you have dozens, hundreds, thousands of devices you're trying to pull data from, there is no other way to do it. You're not going to log into them one at a time and pull that data out. You need to have some kind of basic scripting ability, some kind of programming ability to be able to do these simple data gathering functions at scale. Um, so for sure, that's a tool that's going to be valuable to you. Are you a software developer at that point? I, I, again, I'm arguing, no, you're still a network engineer. It's just a tool that you're right. using to make you better and more capable at your job. Although, again, John, I think maybe, like you said, you're somewhere in the middle. I don't know what you are. I think, like I said, when I spend my day writing Python trial and error all day, and that's what I've done all day, yes, I'm trying to get a BGP table, and I know how to read a BGP table because I'm a network guy or network girl or person. Hmm. That's different than... You know, it's it's uh, you know, it's different than just interpreting the show, show, show. Go to each device and get that output, yep. and then you know, figure it out. I, I, you have to, like you said, you've got to interface with it programmatically now. And again, I'm not making something that's an exe, but when I make a .py file and it does this crazy API calls and compares the <laughs> JSON and loops over this and uh, three dimensional arrays, and that feels like pretty close to software development to me. You know? Yeah. Working with the JSON and working with infrastructure as code, I believe, is going to help enable cloud adoption as well. I think okay. that because the cloud is just, I don't want to say just APIs, they're yeah. complex APIs, but yeah. you're not getting it. You know, it's not like you're leasing a chunk of metal. I think there's a misconception still maybe about what, what you're getting when you get cloud services. Right? You're getting access to resources through an API or a series of APIs. They'll package it up as a portal for you, but you don't have to use the portal. Um, exactly. You're consuming an API to, to stand this whatever it is up, and you're, you're leasing a, a chunk of resource in a big pool of resources at some data center somewhere. Yeah. Right. But, but because it's been built from the ground up on json on restfulness yes the state of a cloud is so much easier there's so much less complexity in capturing and validating cloud state in my opinion because it's truly built from the ground up on json and structured data and restful calls as opposed to no the, the state of the network industry is we're, we're bolting retroactively all of these functions on there and struggling exactly. because we've been uh, every vendor's kind of done it their own way for a while so if you're juniper it's easy if you're cisco it's harder right yeah i agree with that and and then you can use the tools, like that same URI module, instead of pointing it at an infrastructure thing, it's just an API. Behind the Azure or AWS API is rich, rich data. Like, I know there's some concerns about the cloud. What public IPs are you consuming right now? Ask yourself that if you are supporting a cloud, because that's important. 
Those are public-facing IP addresses mm. that are likely dynamically allocated by your cloud provider without any say, without any input, without any regional considerations, security considerations. Bang, there you go, 52117. That's your IP for an hour. How do you how do you capture that state? What state, you know, what was my public footprint in the cloud? Well, you do APIs. You're going to do an API automation call to go scrape that JSON yep. data back, and it will automatically roll over and tell you you've got a new public IP. You might have some considerations because you have a new public IP or because your region has failed over or, or whatever the case is, right? Um, the, the cloud is here as much as automation is here. Uh -huh. They kind of go hand in hand. I'm, I'm doing a lot of research about APIs in general for us, uh, you know, another entry and hopefully in my book series. And I've learned so much about, like, why is the world so different today in 2020? Phones and clouds and nests and, and Internet of Things. And how did we get here, right? Netflix and Google and the API is how we got here, right? In 2000, 2002, we switched over from SOAP to REST. Salesforce launches an API. Amazon's right on their heels. Facebook, Twitter, Right about 20 years ago, this API boom, and now we've refined it, and it's machine to machine. It's so M to M. The traffic shift has gone from 80% human to machine to you know probably 40%, and the rest is machine to machine traffic. Right, that same transformation, the API, the RESTful model, mm -hmm. has now arrived at infrastructure, mm -hmm. and and we are going to go through 20 years of revolution, I believe to catch up to where the software space has using APIs though. Gee, you said 20 That's years my and that opinion, made me right? say, I hope it's not 20 years, but yeah. I hope not 20, maybe we're faster, maybe we're more agile, and right? Part of the problem is just the industry as a whole and all the different vendors with their own self-interest and trying to rally right. around a common model that everybody can can fall in behind and we we're not quite there yet and I think that's holding us up and slowing us down a good bit and uh, maybe we get there maybe all the models become standardized and maybe maybe we get to some nirvana of a standardized network api um we won't but i mean i i want that maybe. i hope yeah that. um if not uh, nothing else then i guess we can all do like we did with the cli look at the documentation now we just look at api documentation figure it out from vendor to vendor and kind of go from there and standardize our approaches i mean you've really talked through in this episode a way to think about the network systematically and validate state. How do you write tests and make sure the network's doing what you need done? And you've talked through Cisco tools that give you the platform to be able to do it. It is still the wild, wild west. There isn't like, I'm going to go take the class that shows me how to, they're still writing the tools. I mean, yeah, there's classes and stuff, but I mean, it's, it's evolving so rapidly. There isn't the way to go and do it and you're going to take these classes or get this cert and now you know how to manage the network the modern way it's not as simple as that at the moment but again i hope it doesn't take us 20 years to figure it out not 20 i think that they've made some strides and i think maybe there's going to be little milestones when we look back at this period of time in our industry where okay the api came on the catalyst 9000 okay the arista's offered everything based on apis okay json is the way to go on juniper march 2020 cisco completely throws out their whole cisco certification library just torches the whole thing hmm. and rebuilds it from the ground up with a programmatic approach in the certifications hmm. you can't get your ccna today if you don't know what python is or hmm. what an if statement is yep. like it's built it's, into that yep 
that fabric of learning the industry. Now, where does that leave? I'm not going to go back and get my CCNA. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to go do that. So where does that leave the 20-year pros? How do you catch up on this new wave and keep up with the next gen that is learning how to do this from scratch? They're not learning the CLI, right? Um, they're, they're coming out of the gate wanting to use RESTful APIs, right? That's my opinion on the next wave of, of network engineers. They're going to come up with this because that's the, the boot camps of the world are going to have to include that module so they can pass their CCNA or their the new dev at, the new DevNet certs, right? Entirely dedicated to this new lifestyle mm. <laughs> right, of, of interacting with networks. So I think we've hit some milestones, but but we're catching up. You know, I, I that's my hardest part. To, I love coming on shows like this. For the people you, you know, where do you think everyone is? Is is are people doing it this way? Am I like an anomaly? And I'm you guys are just like I'm talking like I've got a second head here and no one knows what I'm speaking <laughs> well, about. It's a mix, I'd love to, John. I think people you know, are all over the place. You're you're more advanced than a lot of people I talk to. There's a contingent of people that are like, screw it, I'm retiring in a few years. I don't want to figure it out. I just I just don't want to know. And then there's right. people that are scattered all, you know, all up and down the somewhere in between, in the middle, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, this has been we're we're going on like 80 minutes of recorded time now, which is a pretty <laughs> long run for a podcast here. So let's do okay. this. Tell people how they can follow you on the internet if they want to interact. If you've got a book or a blog or anything you want to promote, go for it, man. Sure. So um, I put a book out in uh, March 2019. It's on uh, Amazon, Amazon Kindle, paperback called Automate Your Network, Introducing the Modern Approach to Enterprise Network Management. Um, anyone who's already supported me on the book, thank you. I, 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 you know, I did it out of a passion project for this stuff that I love to share. Uh, I am on Twitter, John underscore Capobianco. Interact with me, send me direct messages, ask me questions. I love to interact with this community. I have a GitHub repo, um, GitHub automate your network where you can find those Cisco prime APIs and other things that I've put up there. And I'm also on LinkedIn. If you want to find me there um, next week, I'll be uh, doing a 30 minute breakout session at Ansible fest. You can catch me there. It's the same title as my book, but in uh, 30 minute uh, podcast format. Yeah, by the time this runs, the Ansible Fest will have been uh, passed at this point. But okay. uh, if people can check into Ansible Fest and maybe get the recorded content, they can look for your talk that way. I'm, I'm actually registered for, for Ansible me. Fest, but I don't. I'm not going to be able to make it to the event because my calendar oh, no? is so full. But I'm hoping to catch oh. some of the recorded content after it's all said and done. I believe so. they put it all out uh, post uh, post session. They'll, they'll have it all online. So, and th thank you for having me. I I've been a really long time fan and supporter of pack pushes and your you know everything you've done for the community and bringing us all together and having these discussions and uh i really thank you for this well john we got to talk more i mean maybe it'd be fun to, to to dive deep and maybe do some youtube work together or something to show people uh some of these things and continue to demystify some of this stuff that maybe intimidates some folks so for all of you that are listening this has been a long show appreciate it if you stuck to the end some quick housekeeping for you Hey, we got a Slack channel, packetpushers.net slash Slack. And from there, you can join our free Slack community. It's fellow engineers just like you. Just jump in there and start talking. Um, ask questions. Go for it. Also, we have a newsletter that was mentioned during the show, Human Infrastructure Magazine. It is free. It's got the best stuff we found for IT engineers on the internet each week. There's a feature article in there. Uh, Drew, uh, Greg Farrow, and myself, Ethan Banks, we all contribute feature articles like the one John and I were discussing. Are you going to become a software developer and not, et cetera? And we got some stuff in there to make you laugh. We try to find some good nerdy humor for you. 
Last housekeeping thing, membership. If you want to support the Packet Bushes directly, join Ignition for 99 bucks a year and gain access to our growing catalog of premium content. By the way, do you got some stuff you got to say or things you'd like to teach and you want to get paid for it? You can become a paid author on Ignition. Just email me, Ethan at PacketPushers.net. We're looking for writers, analysts, course creators, instructors, and we have a process and we have editors and we make it as easy for you as possible to share your knowledge and get paid for it. You can find this and many more of our fine, free technical podcasts, along with our community blog at PacketPushers.net. We're on Twitter and LinkedIn, catering to your social media addiction. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.